Hello, welcome to episode 21 of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Kanaw. I'm your host. Uh, today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure to speak with Alan Belkin. Alan, I discovered Alan's work through a PDF my friend had sent me called A Practical Guide to Music Composition. And the thing that really struck me about that uh, document was he talked about aspects of music that is completely style neutral. Essentially, what what features make up a quality piece of music? And I actually have written on my wall right here a piece of paper where I wrote down the different notes of the things he talked about. So some of the things in that PDF include foreground versus background, uh, stability versus instability, balance, momentum, balance and length. Right, that's just within that document. And then he, uh, in 2018, he wrote a book called Music Composition, Craft and Art. And in that book, he laid out all of these principles that he talks about, um, which you can find on his website as well. He is a very, very uh, insightful and knowledgeable composer and instructor. Um, he received degrees from McGill University and Juilliard, where he studied with David Diamond and Elliot Carter. We talked quite a bit about that in this episode. And, um, and now he's retired after teaching at the University of Montreal for, what was it, like over 30 years, I think. Uh, he has a YouTube channel where he, he puts together a series of um, uh, educational videos. So like right now, I think he's doing one on applied harmony. He's done others called Modern Harmony, uh, Counterpoint. There's a really interesting series for composers called Analysis for Composers. Um, it's, it's just so many really great and interesting stuff. And the thing that I like about what he talks about is I don't see anyone else saying these things. Like like uh what like we talk about this in the episode what makes a good beginning what are the features required in order for a beginning to be successful what makes a good ending how does one effectively transition and as i mentioned all these things he talks about is completely style neutral it's not like um when you read uh vincent persichetti's book and it's, it's based on uh chordal harmonies and everything like that um so it's applicable to read any style of music that you're writing in. I would highly recommend check out his website um, and read the articles he has on there. A lot of really good pieces of advice. Uh, check out his book and uh, go to his YouTube channel. Um, but other than that, watch this episode. Here's some of the things he has to say uh, just in conversation. So um, I don't think there are any announcements for this week. Or for this episode? Yeah, I think we're good. So, please, uh, like and subscribe. Uh, if, the, if the podcast isn't on any platform that you prefer, I will gladly add it. And uh, I think that's all. So, let's make some noise. My name is Adam Kunal, and I am a collaborative composer. Join me in the search for a career in classical music. This is the Making Noise podcast. I'm, 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 I'm happy you're able to uh, to join me, and uh, we could have this conversation. The internet is amazing. When I was a student, it would have been unbelievable to have a conversation with somebody in a different city, except by telephone, it would cost a hundred dollars. Oh yeah. <laughs> and even then, like, you know, when I went to Juilliard, which is like beginning of the 1980s. Uh-huh. You know, if I'd been able to do, I had to go there. I mean, to be there, or you know, now, now, I mean, even apart from the pandemic, now we sort of do things online. You know, 
certainly composition is something you can teach online. I mean, maybe not teaching voice or something, you know, that's maybe different, but certainly something like composition is doable online. So, you know, times have changed and for the better as far as that goes. Yeah, that's so true. It's, it's like you said, it's amazing that we have this, this resource and opportunity to easily connect yeah. Where with are anyone. You? Where are you? Uh, I'm in Chicago, Illinois. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the internet, of course, also has a bad side, you know, because crap, crap things out there are awful about also. But, you know, that's like any tool. I mean, if you think about it, you know, when the radio sort of became common in the 1920s, right? Like, of course, everyone was amazed. Oh, my God, I'm listening to a concert in another city. But at the same time, they're also one of the things that made Hitler, Hitler possible. Because if he hadn't been able to reach so many masses, all those big masses of people, it wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have done it. So, but that's, you know, that's any kind of tool that involves human interaction. We're a mix, humans. We're not, we're not black or white. We're mixed. Yeah, there's a diversity amongst uh, uh, how we, at least through time, there's a diversity of how we can connect and stuff. Uh, yeah, but I also think, I, I think even human nature was like, you know, I, I don't believe that people are basically good or basically bad. I believe that we, we all have, to some extent, we have both of things in us. Mm. And there's, be, there's individual differences in the context and so but I don't think that most Germans in the 1930s were awful people. I'm not talking about Hitler, I'm talking about just your average everyday people. You know, but the context was us, it was much easier to be a member of the Nazi party and so on. So, you know, it doesn't mean they were, like I said, it doesn't mean they were innately evil, but you know, in other situations, you look at people and you find them being good and it's not necessarily because they're so good. So I think we have the potential for both, you know? Mm -hmm. I, don't think that's all, I think that's what's wrong, a lot of stuff a lot of political theories is sort of they either think that human nature is basically everybody's nice and sweet or that everybody's a monster. I don't think it's either one, you know, the, mm. the, extremes, the extremes are exceptions. Once in a while, you, have, you know, again, I'm not talking about the Hitlers. I'm talking about, you know, the average people who just sort of went along with stuff. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, mm. I, I think that's, that's, yeah, like you said, the extremes are the exceptions where they sort of sit at the fringe, the fringe yeah. of society. Do you know, know who Steven Pinker is? Uh, the linguist, right? Yeah, yeah, but he's also a cognitive psychologist, which is actually the more interesting part of it. Um, like me, he came from, he's about the same age I am, and he also came from Montreal. I'm not really a friend of his, but we know each other, we're acquainted, you know? Uh -huh. And his books are very interesting because, you know, he also, he also, like me, doesn't have this black and white view of human nature. He sort of thinks sort of there are all kinds of things that can push it, push it in one direction or another one. And his, what his big interest has been is what kind of stuff will push the good side of human beings to come out more you know, and there, and there, we know that there are certain things that do that, and other things that definitely, you know, don't don't make the good the good side of things come out. Anyway, it's interesting stuff. You know, he's just one of many people that I started to read a long, long time ago. I sort of realized that music is a human thing, and if you really want to understand music, you got to think about understanding people. Mm -hmm. You know, because after all, music is for human beings, right? Like, I mean, I love my dog, but I don't notice him particularly being wonderful about music. <laughs> I don't notice my dog just going bonkers like some, you know, some piece that I think is wonderful, right? So, you know, but the humans, you know, it's a human thing. So that means it, like it or not, it's dependent to a large extent on how human nature works, how the human mind works. So I started getting, interest, getting interested in reading psychology books and stuff like that. I was amazed at how much I learned about music from reading these books that had nothing to do with music. Tinker mm. doesn't discuss music in particular. And, you know, you know, Daniel Kahneman is thinking fast and slow. Oh, I know the book. I, I don't, I don't know him person or you know who he is as a, as a, a professional or anything. Well, now he's he's much older now, but he's he's a very very famous scholar in psychology. 
and uh, you know also psychology as it relates race to economics. He did lots of research, and his book is really—it's not a theory book; it's a book sort of talking about his research over decades and decades. And there's so many, there's so many things in that that, you know, again, he's not talking about music at all. But suddenly you sort of look at it and you think, hey, like that sort of applied to music. The famous thing, the one I always give to my students, which is a hoot, but it's true, is like in his book, he has a chapter about an experiment that was done with col colonoscopy patients. Well, I don't know if you know anything about colonoscopy, but it's not my idea of a good time. No, yeah. paying a half an hour like that, I don't know. I, I can think of fun, more fun ways to spend the time. Anyway, so the experiment is this, okay? And it's a true experiment. It's like they take this, these patients who are having colonoscopies, okay? And they say, would you allow us to record it? And all, you, all we want you to do is please tell us like when it hurts a lot and tell us when it doesn't hurt very much. So just keep us informed about, you know, sort of more or less how you're feeling about the whole thing. Okay, so they record, you know, I don't know, 30 or 50 or however many. <clears throat> they, they record them and that patients are saying, well, this part hurts a lot, that's not so bad. Uh, but here's the interesting part. So they go back and re-interview re these patients a few months later. And what they remember has nothing to do with actually with what actually happened. For example, if a patient had 28 minutes, let's say, of really oh, it was awful, it was so painful, but the last two or three minutes were okay, that's eh, all right, not a big deal. If he had the opposite, 28 minutes, everything's fine, but the last three minutes were obvious, I'll never do that again, it was disgusting, and so on. So Kahneman draws from that what he calls the peak end idea. The idea that certain things in an experience stick out more than others. For example, the peak, the climax, and the end. I don't know about you, but when I heard that, I started thinking, hmm, music, climaxes, endings, hmm. You know, like, you know, it's pretty important if you want to write a good piece that the ending be successful. Because if the ending is not successful, the last thing your people are going to hear is sort of, eh, so what? You know, so the ending is, you know, the peaks and the endings, those are really important moments. Mm -hmm. And his point was that the experience is a lot less independent of the duration and more a matter of when things happen, you know, in the whole thing. So I thought, you know, that, I read that and I thought, yeah, I think that definitely applies to music. And, you know, I mean, even in my book, I mean, I mentioned something about endings. Uh, you know, it's odd because I, you know, I've read most of the standard composition books, and none of them ever talks about endings, like how to end a piece successfully, which I always found was sort of bonkers. I mean, like everybody who writes a piece comes to an end, mm -hmm. right? Like all, you know, nobody's written an infinite piece. Even, even the crazy like 15 hour pieces are not infinite. So at some point you're going to sort of wonder, okay, well, how do we end this convincingly? And then you get into like, hey, what is a convincing ending? And again, things like this Kahneman book sort of got me thinking about stuff that I never heard about in my music studies. And I had mm -hmm. some good teachers, you know, just like I thought, why hasn't anybody said anything about this? Like, this is weird. <clears throat> so it sort of gave me the idea, well, you know, <clears throat> there are things you can say about endings. I just found that was such an interesting, just an interesting subject to get into. I, and many others like that. That's only one of them. But my point was, what's, what's interesting is just reading this stuff, which was not for musicians or by musicians. I mean, these people may love music, but I mean, Kahneman is not a musician. Pinker is not a musician. I'm sure they have no idea what sonata form is or, you know, anything that any musician would know. But yet they're talking about stuff that's so important to people, the way human experience works. It's like, when you start thinking about it, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there. Like, you know, this is relevant to music. There's a lot of really, you know, interesting, really interesting stuff in there. Anyway, so it's just, you know, it was, it was a, an interesting turning point because I had a pretty good training up to there. But then I was sort of teaching university, and you know, I, I have this rule of pedagogy that says, if there's, if you know 90% of your subject, okay, and you don't know 10% of it, 
when you're teaching it, it's guaranteed that a student will, will ask you a question in the 10% that you don't know. Okay, so you have two choices. Either you say to the student, I'm going to think about that and I'll get back to you, or you sort of slough them off. So obviously, the better solution is to like just think about it and get back to them. And that started happening gradually. And I sort of I found myself like being able to base things on much. So instead of saying, well, just do it this way because that's the way you're supposed to do it, which is a shitty answer. I mean, don't really learn anything from that. They're saying, well, actually, the reason for this is such and such. When you start thinking about it, you know, it could, it could lead you to this or that. And it's just, we're just so enriching. It's just it's an enriching way to start looking at the whole thing. So, you know, a lot, of, a lot of it, I say, just comes from other areas or other fields or other, other kinds of reading and so on. Like, oh, wow. You know, interesting. This is exactly what I love about your work and all of the, the um, uh, writings you've done. I mean, so for i've shown your book on here before but like this book right here um you mentioned the chapter on endings there's a chapter on beginnings uh and you you talk about aspects of composition that like you said i haven't really heard a lot of people talk about like how to convincingly create uh, a transition or a climax or the proportions between that you know um and and so what was the other one uh, a practical guide for music composition uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of PDF books. There's one on harmony, one on orchestration, and so on. Those are free on my website. But, right. You know, but, you know, this this one is published by, you know, it's not too expensive, but anyway. But the thing was, you know, I remember I, I must have been like 15 or 16 years old, so I, I composed a little bit, but I didn't know anything. I was still a piano student. But I remember, like, when I would learn pieces, there are sections, that, like, climaxes were always sort of striking, like, wow. And I started reading all these composition textbooks and nobody ever said one word about a climax. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking like, well, why, why are we, like, how come we don't talk about the most obvious thing? Mm -hmm. It's just very weird that we're not, you know, it's just very weird. We're, nobody mentions it. So it's sort of, you know, as time went on, I started thinking, well, somebody should mention it. Maybe it's about time we do talk about stuff like that. Cause if I can't be the only one who noticed those things, I mean, I don't think it's cause my hearing is so much more subtle than everybody else. Right. Just, people haven't just sort of talked about it. So, you know, that got me to the point where I thought, well, maybe it's time to think about talking about that. And sometimes my own teachers would sometimes like, um, I, when I was at Juilliard, I studied mainly with David Diamond, but I had maybe four or five lessons with Elliot Carter. Like one year Diamond was on sabbatical, so I had lessons with Carter. So at one point I had this, uh, what brought him the beginning of this piece, was sort of like a long pedal tone with it in the nuendo. And Carter said something like, well, don't start a piece with it in the nuendo. I never thought about that before. And then I started thinking, yeah, I can see why, because the diminuendo was a loss of energy. If you read it or start your piece with a long, slowing down, getting tired. That, that's not a great beginning, you know what I mean? It doesn't get everybody's interest though. And that sort of got me thinking about a lot, not just dynamics, but a lot of other things like, okay, what makes a good beginning? And once you, once you have the question, I mean, it, the answers are everywhere, like Mozart, knew how to make a good beginning and so did Beethoven and so did Bach. I mean, but nobody ever talked about it. So once you start looking, like there's a zillion answers to those questions, but you have to ask the question first. If you don't ask the question, nobody's gonna give a shit. Mm -hmm. find the answer, you know? So it's just got me, got me thought of, you know, things like that. Somebody would make one remark, I think, oh yeah. What are that, you know, and I sort of take, you know, I, th I think it's important if you're studying and assuming you have a decent teacher, like the student has to, I, I call it running with the ball. You know, it's like you get the ball, but then don't just sit there saying, oh, I guess I have a ball here. You know what? Like, do something, move, run with it, find out something else. And then, then you get the kind of student that's always the most fun is the student that not only 
gets it, what gets what you're saying, and they say, and what about such and such? Does that apply? You know, and then before you know it, you've got a whole it's blossoming. It's just so much fun teaching people like that. I've had a lot of students like that, and it, they're a blast to work with, you know, because it, it gives me ideas too. Because sometimes they think of things that I haven't thought of, and all of a sudden, like, yeah, that's cool, you know. Before you know it, I think in sometimes it's outside of music. I mean, I have one friend who's also a student, you know, he's very interested in language learning. He's learning Japanese right now. This fellow. So we got it. I mean, I don't know anything about Japanese. But we got into stuff about languages and just all kinds of subjects that you know, off the beaten path, but fascinating. Just totally, you know, fascinating stuff. So you know, I figure it was a kind of kind of cool. But music can lead you down strange paths sometimes. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah, um, yeah. That, that's the, one of the things I find kind of funny. It almost feels like a, a Saturday Night Live sketch where uh, how how the way you came upon how to uh, understand your music was learning about colonoscopies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you think about that, you think, yeah, right, sure. You, I mean, it does sound funny. And a lot of it is funny, except when you, when you start thinking about it, like the point is obviously not the colonoscopy. The point is what we remember. And music is all about memory. You know, I mean, when you write music, if you don't appeal to the person's memory at all, that's so it's not going to have much of an impact, you know, because music is all about patterns in sound and we develop expectations about those patterns. And then, Maybe they get fulfilled or not, that depends. But that's what the composer was playing with. And even something really simple like a deceptive cadence, I mean, the whole point is you have a certain expectation and, oh, how come it went over there instead of there? But that keeps your interest up, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I suddenly think there's like, even if, even if like you're reading like a thriller, I mean, just a cheap spy novel or something. I mean, the one thing, even that kind of novel has to do well is keep you turning the pages, right? So you don't give the, you don't give the reader the answers to all the questions on page 10, because then there's no reason to go on. So you maybe you give the answer to one question, but you lead to another another question, because you always find some way to sort of keep things moving along, you know, keep the interest. It's like, I call it yes, but. It's like, you know, okay, this is true, but there's also, and then you think, yeah, okay, yeah, go. Like, you know, it makes you wanna, you need to have that kind of curiosity. But, you know, again, if there's no, if there's no perceptible patterns at all, I don't know about you, but I tend to give up after a few moments. Like, okay, it's just random. I don't care. No. So anyway, for me, that's a big, big part of music. Yeah, I think there's, that's one area where you and I might um, might diverge a little bit because there's there's music like uh, Chelsea, who mm -hmm. um, there's it's you know where you're kind of sitting on one note and then he yeah. offsets it by a microtone and like mm -hmm. sort of being that immersive experience. Mm -hmm. And but that's. Even even minimal music to me has to evolve in some area. Mm -hmm. If you just had one note electronically played that lasted for twenty minutes, I think you'd get pretty bored. Mm. Okay, as soon as it starts to evolve, you're thinking, oh, okay, what's happening? The pitch is changing, or the timbre is changing, whatever. Because I think that even though minimal music is minimal in one or two dimensions, I think if it's minimal in every dimension, then it's probably not going to keep your interest. Right. So something has to evolve, and so so that it's still. It means that the world is smaller, but you can still have curiosity and you know, like things that sort of, oh, what's that? You know, once you have that reaction, you're on the right track. Like you're sort of, you know, okay, what happened over there? Where's that going? That's all you need. That doesn't make it a great piece, but I mean, at least you have the minimum, I think, for music to, you know, for music to sort of have an effect. Yeah. This, this makes me think about, um, you know, the actor Tom Hardy? Yeah. Um, he did a movie called Locke. Have you ever seen that? No, I didn't see it. No. So Locke is this like it's a short film, like maybe 
I don't know, mm. 60, 60 or 80 minutes. And the entire film just takes place uh, inside his car and he's driving okay. from his job to a hospital. Right. And it's only him the whole time. So like the setting is minimal and right. there's no you know action that's taking place. But what pushes the story along is from the beginning of the drive to the end of the drive, he has to make a series of phone calls that okay. alters the path of his life. Okay, so you know there was there is some kind of progression in there. Mm -hmm. it's, just, it's not the geographical progression that's important. You know, it's the psychological. So I mean, that's the same. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, even reducing the music in one or one or more dimensions to a very small amount, if the rest of it is very rich, can actually be a good thing because it helps you focus. You know, it's just it's like like I said, you don't want every dimension of music to be poor at the same time. Yeah. That's yeah, and well, this this is one of the other things I really like about what you talk about, and you mentioned this in your book too, is that this sort of approach by under by thinking about um, the way we psychologically understand things, looking for yeah. patterns or where the you know patterns are broken, um, is that it's 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 style neutral. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's I not style specific. Music. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I was aware like these days when people study composition, some people want to write quote unquote classical music. I mean. You know, contemporary classical, but a lot of people are looking to write film music or video game music, you know, a lot of other stuff. And in fact, I would say, you know, there's more people, you certainly have a better chance of earning a living writing film music or video game music than you do writing contemporary classical music. You know, you're more likely to get a salary. And the students of mine who's done, who have done the best sort of in career ways, surprise, surprise, have gone in those directions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think for those people, you know, there's no law that says all video game music has to be one style. In fact, quite the contrary, often you want more than one style. The same thing for film music. However, you have to include the classic. Like, you know, if you can't write any tonal music, you're screwed as a film composer. You need to be able to write tonal music, but you have to be able to do other stuff too. So what I'm thinking is like, what are the principles that could apply? I don't want to say to every kind of music in the world, because that's a really big you know, statement, but certainly, you know, the most music that, that people find interesting. And, you know, I think these are the principles that in my, in my mind are the ones that go beyond style. Obviously the classical style applies these things by definition, like you have to think about endings in classical style and climax and so on. But those things apply also to things that are not just classical style pieces. So that's the part, you know, I think I wanted the book not to be just one thing because most of the composition books I've read tend to be sort of, okay, you're learning about classical music, which is okay as far as it goes, but it's sort of leaving out, you know, half or more of the student population. And also a lot of student population. I mean, I've never been big on pop music, but I mean, you know, I don't have to tell you that more people are big on pop music than on classical music. And if you write something that they can relate to, it's definitely a plus. Mm -hmm. You know, and pop music has climaxes and, you know, endings and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's something about understanding like the things that you talk about like the way that music unfolds yeah and uh and applying that to to whatever sort of style that you're working within right, right. um and one of the things that i remember you mentioning is is uh coherence right or in order for a you know a, a successful piece it has to be coherent right, right. and um that's something where even like even in pop music, like these short little three minute long songs, you know, right, right. 
there's usually not a lot of divergence that takes that, you know, that it goes away from also because it's, it's not sure. too long, right. unlike a Mahler symphony or something. Right. Well, generally speaking, the amount of novelty is proportional to the length of the piece. Mm. Was in a one-minute piece, you're not likely to have five different ideas. If only because imagine we were talking for five minutes and we had 75 different subjects of conversation. What? At a certain point, you just, you know, if all of a sudden we're talking about Afghanistan, then we're talking about China, and then we're talking about cooking in Singapore, you know, like, huh? Yeah. You, you just sort of tune out, right? But yeah. you need to focus a certain amount. But by the same token, if you talk for an hour, you're likely to have more subjects than if you talk for two minutes. Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that just, it's almost common sense in a way, you know, short pieces tend to be more limited. There's a nice uh, famous comment by Stravinsky. I don't remember the exact words, but it's something like he finds that constraints inspire him, like they give him good ideas. Just knowing, whereas instead of thinking, well, I can do anything at all, which in a way is sort of nothing, Sort of like, well, this has to be, you know, six minutes longs for viola and piano or whatever. I don't know. You know, and, and you know, it's for a performer who wants a very dense, like, I don't know, I'm just making stuff up. But, you know, just having some kind of constraint is actually more stimulating, more likely to get you thinking, why would I do that? What's an interesting way to do that? And just saying, okay, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought, I always thought it was kind of a cool comment. Yeah, sort of uh, controlling or setting limitations on yourself. Yeah. And if you think about it, any music that you'd like to, to enjoy has some kind of like, you know, whether it's style or whether it's the material. I mean, I can't imagine a piece having no constraints. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the few pieces that I can think of where they try to sort of do everything, in my mind, they're just failures. I don't mm -hmm. think they, they succeed very well. Just because after a while, it's like, yeah, but this is just random bullshit. I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. My opinion, anyway. You know, there was, for a while, there was, you know, it was a period in the 60s and the 70s where sort of you shouldn't use motives, you shouldn't use consonants, and all these things you weren't supposed to do. This was at the post-war generation. Um, but the trouble is they, they told you not to do these things, but they never gave you anything to replace them. Mm -hmm. motive, there's a reason that motives are important, because they're recognizable little bits. And when you come back, you, you, know, you go, oh, yes. Okay, if you don't want to use motives, fine. So what are you going to use instead to give me things I can recognize? Mm -hmm. It's not impossible, but... There's no point just saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, if you have nothing to substitute for it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, that's just, then you're just talking about it like it's a fashion, like, oh, now the fashion is to wear long pants or short pants, you know, like, who cares? It's just random crap. So, you know, once you get into, like, most of these things, these sort of in classical conventions do have reasons behind them, which doesn't mean you have to use them. But if you're going to not use them, you should know why they're there and find another way to, to get the result you know, the thing, get, achieve the thing that they achieve. That's what I think anyway. That, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, that's like, you know, knowing the rules well enough to break them in a way, or, yeah. or at least finding an alternative, I guess. It, it's more, I think it's more, more than rules. I think it's about principles, mm -hmm. you know, more like general principles, like, you know, all that stuff about parallel octaves and direct octaves and so on. I mean, the real principle is not to have holes in the texture. You don't want a texture suddenly feeling like empty for a moment, okay? That's the real question. Now, obviously, what sounds empty in a Prokofiev piano sonata is not the same thing that sounds empty in a Mozart sonata. Okay, you know, you could take things that in a Mozart in a Mozart sonata would sound rich and put them Prokofiev, and they would sound empty because Prokofiev has so much dissonance all over the place. So it's it's, it's context context dependent. But this idea, I call it bumps and holes. You know, like most musical problems are either a bump or something happens, like huh, like and you, you, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Or it's a whole like okay already like enough you know sort of saying the same thing okay right got it okay you know 
I think that covers most problems in musical form that you see. It's either a bump or a hole. You know, if something sticks out too much or something gets boring. It's it's funny hearing you say this because it makes me think about uh, the first time I had seen Beethoven's Fifth performed live. Oh, yeah. There was there was a Q and A beforehand, mm-hmm. and um, I asked the conductor. And I don't remember who the conductor was or anything, but I asked him about. Um, oh boy, what spot is I can't I can't remember if it's the oboe. Um, yeah, the oboe solo, yeah. And I I think I asked him something along the lines of like was Beethoven trying to simulate a mistake or something like that? And this was years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I read, I remember reading in one of your, uh, yeah. uh, it was the harmony text or the orchestration one. And you talked yeah. about that exact section. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you imagine, like imagine we were living at that time. Okay, Obviously we've listened to a lot of other stuff, but imagine if all we heard was Mozart and Haydn. And there you get this symphony that like within the first minute, there's one note holding on and the rest of the chord goes away. You think like, but already it seems pretty weird. So already he's kind of saying look, something weird. Now, after that, there's two possibilities. Either he's just gonna go on, in which case it just sounds like it was a mistake, or at some point he's gonna pick it up and do something wonderful with it. And that's what he does. So the second time it happens, it leads to that oboe solo. So that interruption, which is so weird and puzzling at the beginning, suddenly it's like, wow, all of a sudden the new emotion that is not anywhere else present in that movement, a sort of sad oboe solo, and that's what makes it work. If he had done the oboe solo without that, it would just sound like, what the fuck is that doing in there? Like, why is that? <laughs> you know? So it's, it's a way, I mean, it's a way of creating a, a sort of an anomaly. And it's a very kind of original idea. Because I mean, you can you imagine if you were listening at that time, we saw the orchestra holding that G, yeah, okay. Like, what's the matter? The conductor got had a stroke or what, you know? What's mm-hmm. going on? You know, and then you only the other and Beethoven does that in other pieces too. But I mean, just that's the kind of the kind of thing he was exploring. And the interesting, of course, when Beethoven explored, it wasn't just random stuff. It was always stuff that was expressively very powerful. Because, you know, in the Baroque period, 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 there was this, what they call the principle of unity of affect. And it was a piece that had basically one emotion. Okay? In the same movement, you didn't have, let's say, martial and sat. They didn't belong in the same movement. But in the classical period, Mozart and Haydn, they start combining different emotional states in the same piece. Okay? Now, that's, that's easy to say, but it's not easy to do because you have to do it in a way that makes sense. You know, it doesn't mean you stick 10 minutes of slow stuff in the middle of an allegro, that, that's not gonna do the trick. So you have to set it up in some way that seems like it belongs there. And that, you know, that took quite a lot of doing until they kind of figured out how to do those kind of transitions. Mm-hmm. Beethoven does the most dramatic transitions of anybody up to that time, but they're always emotionally successful. They're not just like, why is he doing that weird thing? Mm-hmm. It's easy to do weird stuff, that's not hard. Anybody can invent weird stuff, but to make it to make it worth hearing, you know, I could say, well, let's let's uh, let's play a cello piece. We'll fill the cello up with honey, and, and we'll do that. Well, that's very nice, but I don't, I'm not sure it's going to be musically of any interest to anybody. You probably have an angry cellist also afterward. <laughs> so, I mean, it's easy to be it's easy to be sort of new that way, but like, so what? Right. You, know, like you want something that if you do something, you better have a reason that's going to people are going to go, wow, that was really that's something. As opposed to, so, you know, like. <laughs> well, okay. So I have I have a couple of thoughts, and I was wondering, can I can I sort of throw some questions at you, yeah, about specific uh, like like you know um, aspects of what makes a successful beginning, what makes a successful yeah. climax? Do you think uh, you can yeah. kind of give a, a like a a little concise response for that? 
sure, yeah. I mean, I can't say everything, but sure, yeah. So um, in in large scale works, or maybe let's, let's let's go a little. I guess well, no. In general, I guess we could just go in general. What what would you say is a is a convincing or a successful opening for a piece of music that's like maybe ten to fifteen minutes long? Well, I think any any I mean any piece of any length, but even more so if it's longer. I think I just want to take the cough drop. Um, I think any opening has to get you interested. So what gets people interested? Usually curiosity of some kind. Like, you know, now you may not think about it that way, but think of the Mozart, Jupiter, dum, 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 dum. So you have something really forceful and something very lyrical, but like in two seconds apart, right? So your first thing is like, yeah, okay. Like you want to see what are they doing together? You know, it's, it's a contrast that sort of gives you, you think, okay, like you don't think of it intellectually, but it sort of it kind of grabs your interest, you know. So anything, anything that sort of manages to grab your interest, usually it'll either be some kind of like a progression, which is incomplete, like sort of let's say a crescendo that stops, and then you think, okay, now what? Okay, or it could be something like putting two like like the Mozart putting two ideas side by side in a very short space. That's like you know, if I said to you something like today, I want to talk about. Um, Musical form and cancer in China. Well, then you're thinking, what's that? <laughs> you're already sort of wondering. I mean, either I'm talking crap, or maybe you have an interesting connection you haven't thought of. Okay? So that's that's basically the idea for the beginning. You have to get people curious. Yeah. I, I, I like I like that description: <laughs> musical form and cancer in China. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? Two things that you don't think that why do they belong together? But then, oh yeah, then you st- you know, if, if the piece is any good. I'll start seeing, okay, this is, that's what they have to do with each other, and you go on from there. So I would say curiosity is the main thing for a beginning. And curiosity means some kind of pattern that is not totally finished. If you wanted to finish, if you wanted to start a beginning with five, one, you know, like a t- dominant tonic chord, root position, perfect authentic cadence, it's not a great beginning, mm. you know, because it sort of seems like, okay, it's the end. Now you can trick you, you can trick the listener. Beethoven's first symphony does that. Delta for the five, one. But it's in F major, but then right away you have a five one in C major. So I'll read your thing like, okay, which key is it? You know, in other words, in some way you create curiosity. But to mm. me, that's the, the sense of a good beginning. Okay. Um, now, what about a convincing climax? Climax is easy. Climax, by definition, is the most intense point, right? So that means it has to be led up to by some kind of <clears throat> progression. I don't mean harmony progression, I mean, it'd be like, Registers getting higher, dynamics are getting louder, tempo is getting faster, you know, some kind of thing where you sense there's a something is accumulating in a certain direction. And then you sort of feel like it's finally reached as far as it can go. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the definition of a climax. By definition, it isn't something that's already happened, but it's fulfilling something. Like if you just put a high note in the middle of a soft pass, it's not going to sound like a climax, it's going to sound like a mistake. And with the climax, it's an extreme that's been properly led up to. Right. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that I recall you talking about where the proportions are really important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending on the size of the P, obviously, climax for a Mahler symphony is going to be longer than climax in a Chopin prelude. It's one page. Mm-hmm. But it's the yeah. same principle. Yeah. One of one of my favorite examples of, a, a, I mean, there's obviously countless, but uh, Sibelius two. Is it Sibelius two? Mm-hmm. Is that the one in D major? Yeah. Yes. And uh, the finale, oh, the, yeah. the third movement going into the finale, 
Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. He, he was pretty good, Sibelius. It's funny because Sibelius is often considered a traditional composer. But actually, he's one of the most original composers who ever lived. Just because he called this piece symphony, he'll sort of assume that's traditional. But if you look at the form, there's nothing traditional about it, nothing conventional about it. He's trying interesting stuff all the time. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, there's lots of interesting stuff in Sibelius like that. Fourth Symphony also does some very unusual stuff and it's like, wow, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, even like when I when I start digging into his scores too, there's there's so much in there that you you, you might not hear on first listening and then you see it in the score, you're like, wait, what, what is what is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, it, but it, it catches you emotionally though. It does, it right. totally does. Yeah, I mean, it may not, you may not analyze. I mean, I don't think it's important to analyze music on first listening anyway. Mm. Like, I mean, I'm interested in analyzing a piece if I've already listened to it and I like it. Then I'm curious because I'm a musician. I'll say, well, how did he do that? Mm. So then I'll want to analyze it. But I don't want to analyze first and then listen. Like, you know, if the piece is a good piece, I don't need to analyze it. And if it's a lousy piece, analyzing first won't make me like it any better. Mm. I'll just be saying, why are you wasting my time with all this blabbing you know, when the piece sounds like shit? By the way, you know, and for me, analyst comes, if I've listened to it, I enjoy it, then I'm curious, okay, what did he do? How did he get that? And then I'm starting, then I'm taking it apart. Yeah, that's, that, that could be a tricky thing sometimes is, is yeah. listening to a new piece and not analyzing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, if it doesn't get, I mean, here again, that guy Kahneman, the psychologist guy, you know, um, the book, that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, one of the basic ideas of the book, it says we have two kinds of thinking. One of them is what he would call system one, which is the fast kind. System one is the stuff you do, like you go to the grocery store, you meet somebody in the street and you say hi. Now, you did not spend 10 minutes thinking, what are the pros and cons of saying hi to the grocery store clerk? You know what I mean? It's just automatic. You know, you don't even think about it. And most of the time in our life, most of, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Well, system one, it's sort of, you don't, you don't reflect on it. System two is when you sort of say, wait a minute, I have to really think this over carefully. I like big decisions in your life, you should use a little system two. You know, otherwise you can get yourself royally screwed by just following your impulses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a good idea, but not always. Okay. So the, that's why it's called thinking fast and slow. Okay. So the fastest system one, it's like the stuff that's like that. And, and the slow is like, at least you're saying, wait a minute, I got to think about this. Well, music takes place in time, right? Like peace will not pause for five minutes while you analyze it. So when you're listening to the piece for the first time, I figure like if it doesn't get you in your system one, Frankly, it's not a good sign. It doesn't mean you have to love everything about it in every second, but if nothing in the piece sort of gets you feeling like excited or moved or something, not a good, it's not off to a good start in my opinion. Then you may decide to apply your system too. Obviously also somebody with musical training, and obviously if I listen to a tonal piece, I don't need to do a lot of analysis to recognize the perfect authentic cadence when I hear one, right? That's sort of, and I know what the French horn is and what the trump, you know, I don't, it's not even analysis that's become system one for me because I've been doing it for so long, right? But if I really, anything sort of more than just obvious stuff like that, so I think, okay, let's have a look at that. And then I'm using my system too, but you can't listen to music with system two because it, it doesn't stop and wait. Mm-hmm. You just, it's going to keep going whether you like it or not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's an article I read a while ago about the perception of time or mm-hmm. the, the experience of time. Yep. And uh, talking about how um, it, it like went through sort of the historical um, right. philosophical ideas of what the, how time was understood. Yeah. And one of the things was talking about how um, at the point in which you start to think about what happens, 
it's already in the past and what's happening now. Yeah. You know, um, I can't remember exactly what it said. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not going to be clear on what I'm saying right now, but you're making me think about that article. Well, you know, it's a little bit like the colonoscopy thing. It was while the people were happy in the colonoscopy, the duration of feeling shitty counted. Mm. 20 minutes of feeling shitty matters. But in their memory afterward, that's the interesting part. What matters is when the shitty part happened and not how long it took. Mm. That's the part that was surprising in people's reactions. But, you know, music has something to learn from that too. But duration itself, I mean, unless it's crazy, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, a piano piece that lasts five and a half hours. But I mean, you know, your average piece, I mean, duration itself is less important than the highlights, the things that stick out that you remember. You know, the contrast effects, you know, you know what contrast effects are in psychology. If it rains for 10 days and then it's sunny. So, oh my God, finally the sun is up. If it's sunny for 10 days, you don't even notice it anymore. Because we notice what contrasts with what just happened. Music is full of that stuff. Like it's all over the place in music, right? And so much of the most effective music just make good, makes effective use of contrast effects. It's just a simple example, but one of the most common beginner's mistake in orchestration is too much doubling. The problem with too much doubling is it's okay, but after a while, you've killed all the contrast effects. If the strings and the winds of the brass are playing all the time, you never use the contrast. If you have the strings alone for two minutes, and then the brass comes in, it's like, wow. But if, they, if they've been playing all along, it's like, okay, so what? I mean, it's, it's idiotically simple, but it really applies. Yeah, and I know, I know um, you know, what especially as student composers, like getting into writing something so massive, especially for the first time, it's like, it's a big undertaking, but also um, even as a creative person in general, in the, in the middle of the process of trying to make a new piece of art, mm-hmm. it's, it's so, it's so easy to sort of lose sight of like, of the forest, you know? Yeah. That's the kind of thing, again, a little bit of psychology knowledge goes a long way, but just knowing how important contrast effects are, I mean, that this does not require any fancy knowledge about special effects or anything. Just like sometimes have the winds shut up for a while. And when they come back, it's going to be more interesting than if they're playing all the time. It's that simple. Right. Rather more complicated ones, but I mean, that's the simplest example. And it's relevant to all kinds of orchestration. I don't care what style you're in. If you don't use contrast effects, it's like you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're not mm. using some of the most prominent and most useful stuff that you can use. As just it's, it's a ridiculously basic fact of human psychology. It's interesting how how um, how it seems like from from what I've noticed at least with with student composers is is it's often like either too much variety or not enough variety. Got it. It's like kind of one of both extremes. Right. Right. Yeah. Too much variety very often comes from too much analysis. Like people confuse what you can see. Let's say you can see the retrograde version of something much more easily than hearing it. You take some theme and put it in retrograde so the rhythmic values are all backwards, it's gonna sound pretty different. So you're less likely to go, oh yeah. On the paper, it's really easy to see it. But that's a common mistake. If people do analysis looking at the score and they think that if somebody points out the retrograde inversion, oh yeah, that's really important. But if nobody notices when they hear it, who cares? <laughs> see, this is another thing that, that you talk about where I haven't heard anyone else say this sort of stuff. And it's, 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 it's ridiculous. You know, I also found, well, I keep saying, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in what I can hear. Mm-hmm. Your music is meant to be heard. So I don't care what you say on paper and all the blah, blah, blah that goes with your stuff may be fine. But if when I listen to it, if none of it is like, I think there are three levels. There's some stuff that you notice right away. Okay. 
Like let's say if you have the whole orchestra playing and suddenly you have the flute solo, everybody's going to notice that. You don't need a doctorate in musicology to pick up on that. Right, okay? right. Obvious contrast, right? Then there's some stuff like, like I said, the retrograde inversion of the first theme occurs in measure 374 for the first time, and it's in the bassoon part, which is in the middle of 10 other woodwinds. I don't know about you, but like I could listen to it 20 times and I would never notice that. Right. It's just it's no way. So those are the two extremes. And then there's stuff like that you, you sort of notice more, the more, more training you have. Like certainly, you know, like again, I'll notice a perfect cadence or an imperfect cadence or whatever, just because you know I have that training, so I'll pick up on it. The, the untrained listener might they might feel different degrees of punctuation, but they won't know what to call it. Okay. So, so it's sort of, you know, there's different degrees of salience. Like some things are just impossible to ignore. Other things like, like I say, it's it's written on the page, but nobody will ever hear it. So some of the problem with people, the student compositions is they mistake unity from visible things to audible things and mixing up the two, right? So just because you can see something, you know, 500 bars later, does not in any way mean that when you listen to the piece consecutively and 500 bars later, as you like, you know, 15 minutes later, not at all sure you're gonna make that connection. You have to really rearrange it to make the connection, not just assume, every, oh, everybody's going to pick up on the retroactive version of measure five, that's been 75. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's um, something that I learned from one of my composition instructors. I actually mentioned this in the last episode, <laughs> is uh, she she has this, this great idea about when you write out a version of the piece, however long it is, she yeah. takes color pencils and then mm -hmm. will circle a specific um like whether it's a dynamic motive or a rhythmic motive or a pitch you know motive and so that color cor corresponds to that specific motive and if you see it in the beginning like color red and then measure 575 you see color red again then it's like okay there's no one's going to notice that connection because it's so it's so far apart too far apart there are ways to make you notice it you can set up measure 575 as a real turning point you make a big, big climax and you have a pause before it. And then the red thing is what you just heard right at the beginning. Then you might connect because it's sort of saying, hey, look, look over there. There's something coming. Got that? Got that? Watch, look, look, look over there. You're setting up the listener. But if yeah. it's just in the middle, middle of the other stuff, no, it doesn't. It's useless. Right. There's there's too much fluff around it to make it. You're distracted. You're distracted. You can't remember 100 things at the same time. It's that simple. That's another reason for motives. To give you something to focus on as opposed to like everything. Mm. You know, telling somebody you should notice everything is it's sort of like saying don't notice anything because it's so vague. You know, the, 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 the example I always give is the piano teacher, all they have to say is, you know, you're playing, you could play better. Well, frankly, I don't need a teacher to tell me that. I know. <laughs> give, me details. give me details. Like how? What am I supposed to do? Where? You know, if you just come, yeah, sure. You know, if you tell me my composition should be better. Yes, I agree with you. Okay, where? Give me a suggestion, measure what, what am I supposed to do? I might not even agree with the suggestion, but at least we have something to talk about. Mm. Did you say this composition could be better? Yeah, I agree. No problem with it, but nobody's learned anything. Yeah, that's uh, that's not a good teacher. <laughs> nope. yep. That's why I wrote on my website, I have that letter to a young composer. And I wrote that based on experiences of my own, just, you know, where a bad teacher really set me back, you know, a couple of bad teachers really set me back a few years. And that letter is a way of sort of maybe helping people avoid the same problem, mm -hmm. you know, not not sort of have the kind of problems that I have just because basically the teacher was not doing their job properly. That, 
that's something else too that I want to let uh for people who don't know who you are on your website, you have all these great resources. Uh, yeah. Like the letter to a young composer, you have, um, a, a tab on titled on musical ideas. There's one on salience. Um, and then, the, yeah. And there's the whole series on orchestration, harmony, counterpoint, um, music, isn't there one on musical creativity is it called or um, not exactly, but anyway, yeah. But I mean, anyway, it's a, these are just essays I wrote at different times, and I still thought maybe this will be interesting to a reasonable number of people, mm -hmm. and it turns out that they are. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've benefited a lot from them. Um, I mean, the, wor the works that I've written in the last few years since I've um, learned about you, uh, though I've applied a lot of the principles you've talked about with proportions and, you know, um, the psychology of, of uh, how we understand and experience things. Um, what? You know, when I when I started all this, I mean, the, the, the book, that book from Yale was only published in 2018. That's a few, not too, too old, but the like a lot of the I started teaching university, you know, like 40 years ago, it was like 30 years old. OK, and in that in that time, there wasn't even inter, the Internet didn't exist at that time. Right. So, OK, your thing. And well, like I said, I had some good teachers at Juilliard and, you know, I was teaching and learning, like I said before, from questions people asked when I was teaching. Anyway, fine. Um, then the internet comes along, right? And this is like 15 years later. So now we're like 1995, you know, it's beginning to be used like more commonly, okay? It's not like it is today, but I mean, people are starting to have heard of, oh yeah, the internet, you know, you can go on AOL or whatever, you know, have your account. So I started thinking about what would be interesting that certain kinds of things like, like a, a subject like harmony, tonal harmony, let's say, doesn't change a lot from one year to the next. It, you know, pretty much the same stuff you're teaching every year. So why not record it once, put it online, and you can save the teacher having to give the same lecture every single year, and just have the teacher spend more time with the students looking at their work, as opposed to having just repeat the same stuff I've been repeating for 15 years now, you know. So that, that was the first thing. But, you know, at that point, I, I even proposed at the university, but they weren't really interested at that point. I don't think they saw the potential of it. Okay. Things went on, and then now we're getting to the 2000s, and you know, eventually, like everybody else, I jumped Facebook and you know, all this stuff, and you know, uh, the web and YouTube and everything. So I thought at a certain point, maybe I should sort of start putting stuff up on YouTube. Okay, this is like 2013, maybe. Okay, so at first, of course, I had a, a channel, but I mean, like, you know, I had like three people following me. I mean, I put something up, and like in, in a week, four people would, would look at it. Okay, all right, but you know, but. As time went on, I sort of improved it. And since it's free, it was sort of, you know, it started getting more people. So now I have like 24,000 subscribers. Like if you told me about it in 2013, I would have thought, hey, you're crazy. Never, <laughs> yeah. okay. But, you know, it's obviously, I seem to be saying stuff that is not the same as what everybody else is saying. And people seem to find useful. So to me, that's very fulfilling because I mean, I've always, I always like teaching. I mean, I'm a composer, but I, I've always had fun teaching. Teaching for me is not just a way to, a way to make a living. It's just something I really enjoyed, and I've always enjoyed it. You know, there are good musicians who don't like teaching, but I like teaching. So, you know, since I enjoy teaching, you know, that's a nice way to teach to reach out to people much farther than the local, the local circuit. So, you know, as that sort of became a bigger and bigger thing, I started putting up more videos. And then I retired about five years ago, so I had more time. Okay, I'm doing all these, you know, apply counterpoint harmony and so on uh, online. So the result is that more time, and I want to put stuff up and like. Like I said before, I'm just trying to talk about stuff that other people are not talking about. I don't need to repeat. There's no nobody needs me to repeat exactly the same thing that everybody else has said. 
But if I have something to say that is not so common, like, okay, that might be worth like putting up and people seem to find it of interest and find it useful. So I'm happy that, you know, that's very satisfying to me. And now if I, even if I put up one of my pieces on my channel, like, you know, in two days, I'll get a thousand views. Whereas in those days it was three, right. you know, just, just because, you know, people are interested. So all these people subscribing. So, you know, that's also, that's pretty rewarding. And of course, uh, COVID, nobody predicted COVID, but I mean, COVID has certainly pushed all that a lot farther for obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is interesting because it definitely ties back to what we were talking about earlier about the, uh, at the very beginning of our conversation about the ability to do this and, and reach yeah. a lot of people in a short amount of time, actually yeah. immediately, really. I, I found another funny experience, which is in, like all through my career, I've always tended every year I'd make friends with one or two students and we'd stay friends, you know, not all of them, but one or two, you know, so and with the result that, you know, since my career started, you know, 40 years ago, some of my, some of the students in question are now like 60 years old and some of them are 40 and some of them are, you know, 20, the ones from recently. So I have these friends of different ages and that's, I've always enjoyed that, you know, but the online thing has also been interesting because I've met people from all over the world who just, we've become friends. You know, I have a good friend in Switzerland, but I'm learning German. So with him, I talk German, it's a chance to practice my German, right? Well, like, I mean, the only way we could possibly have known each other was online. We met each other during COVID and, you know, but we're in touch regularly and we have nice chats about music and all kinds of other things. You know, I have friends in other countries. It's just, again, none of this would have happened. I mean, I'm just glad I didn't retire like 35 years ago, you know, before the internet was around because my retirement would have been much more impoverished. Mm. You know, I couldn't be able to meet these people, wouldn't be able to teach all these people. So it's a blast. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's, uh, yeah, really great time and opportunity to be able to, uh, to utilize that. To do stuff like this, it's been a lot of fun for me. That's what I enjoy, you know, because I don't make much money from the, when I teach individually, I make some money, but you know what, put the courses up online, basically that's Patreon, but I mean, most of it goes to the guy who does my web program, web programming, programming mm. and stuff, you know? but I'm not doing it for the money. You know, like I'll, I don't care. I, the main thing is I want to, the reward for me is feeling that people find it useful. That's good. Yeah, it's definitely doing that. Um, so are you're still teaching privately? Yeah, yeah. I've stu again, students from a little bit off, again, because of COVID, I don't see too many people in person. Mm. But, you know, definitely have students all over the place. I mean, students in China, Australia, and Germany, America, you know, you name it, sort of all over the place. Right, yeah. yeah that, that With the... Uh, um... Uh, the 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 things you talk about on your channel and everything like that. I mean that that a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And is this primarily composition, or do you still have piano students as well, like online? I'm not. I'm not I haven't played piano enough for a long time. No. No, it's mostly like harmony, counterpoint, composition. No, that mm. that area of things. You know, writing skills and composition. That stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and um with with the YouTube channel. So I mean it looks like you're pretty active with it, like almost, no, no. almost right. weekly, right? Or, or a couple of times a week. Yeah, well, it depends. The, the, the only, the applied harmony course I'm doing with a friend of mine, you know, Andrew Sharkman. So that is both of us. The other ones are all just me. Okay. Applied harmony, some of the lessons he writes, some of them I write. So sometimes if you see two in a row, it might be that one of them came from him. You know, like I might, I might not have written, written two lessons. I might've just put up a, Applied orchestration lesson, and he's doing a harmony lesson. Sometimes it's me, so it, it's a little bit unequal. You know, it depends. Because also he's busy too; he has a full-time job. But you know, but, but it's moving along. And, you know, I say like now that I'm retired, like 
you know, when I get up in the morning, it's one of the things that I look to do. You know, today I worked on the next slide orchestration lesson. That was today's work, you know, this morning. So when, you know, most of the time I'm working on something, I try and get out at least a couple per month, sometimes more, but depending, you know, depending what's happening. But it's fun. Is this is this something where you're um, you're taking from your lectures um, during your time teaching in university? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is similar material. Some ideas I have now that I didn't have then, and also you know the online thing. Generally, most of the time they're very short. Uh -huh. We're talking 10-15 minutes, right? So you know it tends to be very focused on one single thing. Uh, you know, lectures in in classroom were like three hours long. That's like a different game, you know. But a lot of the content is similar though. It's a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some, it, it's the same thing I've been interested in all along. There's, there's, there's a really great series that you have. I mean, like the, the applied uh, harmony one and uh, the analysis for composers one, I thought was a really fascinating idea. You're, you're sort of putting into video format, a lot of the stuff you talk about in your book and everything. Um, yeah, but and but even more than that too. Well, because I found a lot of the analysis courses that I took myself, in the old days, they were, like I said, first of all, they focused too much on what you could see as opposed to what you could hear. And also they, they weren't all that relevant to composers. As long as you think like, okay, but what does this have to do with me? Mm. But actually, if you think, if you try to see things in this style neutral way, it's fairly easy to make them relevant. You just have to sort of say it, you know, like, oh, here's, here's an example of Mozart doing a climax. How does he do it? Could you use that? And yes, you can. You don't have to write the same style as Mozart to use some of those techniques, but you just have to think about it that way. So if you look at it just as a matter of learning Mozart's style, which is okay, you're not going to generalize it. But if you think of it like, how did he do that transition? How did he do that climax? Well, that's the kind of thing where, you know, it could very well transfer very well to other subjects. It doesn't have to be one single thing. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think, you know, that, that that's, it was a, that's why I called it analysis for composers. Mm -hmm. I could have, I, I did at the university and I could do, maybe I'll do someday, a course called analysis for performers because performers also often take an analysis course and they think like yeah and it's so easy to, to make it relevant you just to say well what should a performer do here to bring out this or that thing you know and in the class i would actually have students come up on the stage and they would play a piece that they were learning and we talk about like okay if we if we analyze this piece what should so and so be emphasizing more are they making too much of a retardando here i mean just Talk, but basically talking about how to make a better performance based on your understanding of the piece. You know? mm. so that was kind of fun also, because like, like too many analysis courses are just called analysis. Mm -hmm. All right. But it's kind of, like I said, they don't seem connected to anything. I'm kind of, I'm sort of allergic to that. <laughs> I can understand that too. Um, yeah, well, especially with if, if um, a lot of people just sort of think about analysis based on harmony and pitch. Yeah. That's, that's just one part of things. I mean, it's, it's important, but there's many other things to talk about. Often it's not even the most important thing. Mm -hmm. you know? it's, it's the interaction, you know, music, counterpoint, harmony, are not all separate. You just teach them separately at the beginning because you can't think of 20 things at once. Mm -hmm. But eventually harmony has to become counterpoint and counterpoint has to turn into, you know, because you can't, what's the difference between counterpoint for choir and counterpoint for five different instruments? A big difference because if, if you have one, one part is the, you know, the oboe, another part is a violin, another one is a trumpet. Well, those instruments really, they don't blend. You're gonna hear dependent lines. If you put the same three parts for choir, they're much more blended. So it's the same counterpoint, but the effect is not the same. You know, and it's the same thing with harmony and so on. So ultimately all those things should converge. You don't have three different brains. You don't have a harmony brain, a counterpoint brain, you know, 
it's the same brain and eventually you have to sort of understand how they come together yeah that's that's exactly <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense <laughs> that's what i feel anyway again a lot of times because I, I also learned these things like everybody else did sort of separate and eventually i started thinking like is that you know when it again it, it, once you ask the question the answer isn't that hard it's just you have to ask the question you know like if somebody never says well the counterpoint and harmony how do they relate to each other once you start thinking it's not going to take you five five years to figure it out but if you don't ask the question you just figure okay i learned the harmony rules and the counterpoint rules and the orchestration rules but you know that's that's not where it's at and a lot of students too i know they get kind of stuck on the idea that there are rules when learning it yeah well i guess the principles are better because you know, parallel fifths and direct fifths, those are examples of holes, bumps and holes, you know, those are holes. Mm. So if it makes a hole in the texture, however, if you're playing a WC piece, which has a ton of parallel fifths, actually there a third would be a hole. The parallel fifths would be normal and maybe a third would stick out. So right. it's not the parallel fifths in themselves are mortal sin. It's more a matter of like in the context, what sticks out, what's boring. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Um, yeah, because he he extensively used fifths, especially in the piano music. Yeah, um, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, all these, you know, different in medieval period also you had parallel fifths and parallel fourths. Right. Even they're morally wrong. Right. Just being, you know, if in the wrong context, they're going to sound like if, if you take in the middle of a Bach chorale and you put in a couple of parallel fifths, it's going to sound like just a, a dumb sort of empty moment. But like I say, if you take a piece of Debussy and you stuck in a bunch of parallel thirds, sometimes that would sound wrong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's really in the context, what's a bump, what's a hole. Right, yeah, based on the uh, the mm -hmm. sort of character and environment that you're, you're establishing. You know, you, when you listen to a piece of music, it takes you a few seconds to sort of deduce, I'm gonna say the language or the sort of the norms, okay? It doesn't take, it doesn't take you an hour. Usually within a minute or two, you're starting to develop expectations. That's the same thing that makes us think that think that there are planets that are shaped like vegetables, you know, you know, solar systems, you know, named after people. It's all bullshit. But we brain, the brain is a pattern seeing machine. Like it or not, we're seeing patterns of. It might be bullshit patterns, but we're seeing patterns all the time. So when you listen to a piece of music, you're looking for patterns, even if you don't want to. You can't help it. That your brain is going to do it anyway. That's just because if you don't notice patterns, you would have been killed by a lion. Now you have enough sense. If you notice the lion coming far away. You don't spend 20 minutes thinking, I wonder if the lion's going to hurt me. You know, you figure the lion is far away. You've had enough evolution has done done enough for you that like when you figure the lion is coming towards you, you're going to get off your ass and move. Right. So, evolution is taken care of. And what evolution did is it gave us this very, very strong pattern-seeking thing. And again, often we see bullshit patterns, but it's better to see too many of them and live than not see enough of them and die. So it just worked out that way. So that's why, you know, the brain is a pattern-seeker. That's one of the main things the brain is set to do. And it certainly does that in music. That's sort of fascinating to think about where um, in, in something like music or film or anything that's yeah. uh, a form of entertainment, the um, like survival instinct of yeah. recognizing where yeah. patterns are broken is yeah. what, what kicks in that sure. Sure. creates interest. Yeah, I mean, any story, I mean, any story you read or you see in a film, I mean, any any story starts with a problem. If you know, if the film started off, you know, they live and then they lived happily ever after. Would you really feel like watching anything else after that? You know, watch two hours of people living happily ever after, and like, okay, sounds kind of boring to me. You know, so you have to start off with some kind of problem or question, and then 
things work out or don't work out, but then you're sort of in this, you know, you've got your thinking about, okay, this, given this pattern, I think this will this or that way, then a million things can happen, you know? Mm-hmm. You watch any TV program or something or any film, and they get you thinking about something, and then you may be surprised. There's a lot of surprises, but the surprises don't exist if you don't see any patterns. Yeah. So surprise means you had some expectations and they're broken. Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting sort of connection to make. Um, I, yeah. I I'm kind of curious with with your own personal process of composing and stuff. What sort sketches. of what's that? Sketches. Sketches. Yeah, they just make little sketches. I, have a, I mean, uh, my house was in a big fire, so I don't have all my stuff here. But I'm living in a rented house for now. But yeah, I mean, I have a, a big pile of stuff, sketches that I made at all ages. It could be like you know, four bars of music or just a little idea. I, you know, if I'm not reading it, I'll just sort of stick it in the folder, the sketch folder. And then, you know, at some point it'll end up being useful for something. Just sketches, you know, and then the sketches, then you can develop them. But the sketches, just little bits of things that could be fun. You know, like on my computer, I have a file called sketches. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just little, and it's not one piece, it's little bits and pieces of things that at some point I hope to use somewhere. So with, with, with the sketches that you make, do you, uh, do you find when you're working on a piece, do you sort of, you'll go into your arsenal and see, oh, this might connect with this really well? Or do you just take one sketch and like, let me see if I can elaborate this? No, I, th- th- this was another one inspired. There's a famous story about Stravinsky. Elliot Carter was visiting Stravinsky. So he asked to go into his workroom, Stravinsky's workroom where he composed, okay? Stravinsky had one of these drafting tables. It's sort of big, big table kind of slanted like that, you know? This is obviously before computers. so. Carter sees on the table, like there's like seven or eight sketches and they're all sort of like little pieces of paper and Stravinsky's like juggling them around, which is this one, I forgot, you know? so like he's sort of saying, I wonder if this would fit that, nah, oh, but that goes well after that. You should just experiment with these little bits of music. Now, Stravinsky, Stravinsky does a lot of cross-cutting so you can see it, but the basic idea of just trying out stuff, you know, you try something, nah, this doesn't go well after that, but that could be great, or maybe that's better, you know, just play with it. I mean, sometimes, the continue sometimes the continuation will just strike you right away but if not sometimes you just play with the sketches and you know there's a there's an element of chance but it's controlled chance mm. you know you, the sketches by themselves have to have a certain interest and then you're sort of playing with what you've got and at some point somebody's going to go you're going to be like yeah that that's good whereas that eh, not so hot you know so that that, that i think I, I didn't invent that i mean beethoven sketches are famous and bach made sketch you know any composer did some kind of some some of it in their head, but some of it they wrote on paper, and we have some of those papers, so it's obvious that they were trying things out and, and re- rejecting things too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's funny hearing you say that because the composition instructor I mentioned earlier, her name is Eleni Lilios, um, the one who recommended the colored pencils and stuff. She she also did something similar where she showed me like where she'll have her her uh, draft written out, and then she'll take scissors and just cut little yeah. motives and move them around yeah. literally what you're saying Stravinsky did so that yeah that, I mean, that's, that was that was the cool thing about that story from Carter was you know it never, never occurred to me you kind of think of it and if you try it you'd, you'd be amazed what it can give you mm. you know because you, you're just fooling around and it's kind of you're playing around but at some point something is going to hmm, that you know it's like you're having a conversation with somebody and they say one thing you think about that I want to know more about that you know it just it just strikes you that way so you know that, again I didn't invent it it's a very you know I, I, I learned the sketching thing from Diamond. I didn't even know about that when I started studying with David Diamond at Juilliard. Like he was, he said, just bring in sketches for a few months. You know, so I bring in ten bars of music, and we talk about how it could be developed. 
Mm. That was nice. I'd never thought of that before. You know, none of the, none of the people in the, in the past had ever mentioned such a thing. I have to go fairly soon. So, did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask? Oh no, we we can we can uh, cut it off right there. Uh, I I appreciate your time so much and everything that you you've been saying, Alan. This has been fantastic. I'm glad you find it of use. Okay, so yeah. you know when it's going to go up. But I, I, I guess you have to do a little bit of editing anyway. But then, yeah. So what I'll do. Um, I'll be uh, posting this in two weeks, uh, Monday, not this, not, not Monday coming up, but the following Monday. Okay, we're just um, gonna, I added you as a friend on Facebook, so you can just send me a message on Facebook or email or whatever. Sure. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, before, before we sign off, is there any way that you would like people to kind of find you on your website or anything, or like where, where can they, uh, where can they reach out to you if they want to? When, when you put it up, I'll put it up on my Facebook page because I have like over a thousand Facebook friends. Mm. Who, will, who will notice it so that'll probably get some interest okay all right yeah um yeah well alan thank you so much for being on here I, i've had such a great time talking to you okay nice to meet you we'll, we'll talk again sometime